when my child was three years old, they were diagnosed with autism. It changed the way that I viewed my personal finances and the questions that I asked and the way I interacted with healthcare systems and state systems. And there's not too much out there about that. Welcome to the Smart Money Mama Show, where moms get real about money to help you find your financial confidence and live your best life. Now let's talk money, mamas. Hey there, I'm your host, Chelsea Brennan, and mamas, today on the show, we're talking to Bryn Conroy from Femme Frugality. As you may know, April is both Financial Literacy Month and Autism Acceptance Month, so there's no better time to talk about finances with special needs kids. Bryn is the mother to an autistic child and publishes a free, annually updated guide for parents of autistic children, walking them through Medicaid eligibility in all 50 states in Washington, D.C., which has just this month been updated for 2020. We'll have a link to this awesome resource in the show notes. Bryn has spent her career as a personal finance writer, with a large portion of her work covering disability, the toxic nature of the helper mindset, the financial impacts on women's salaries and careers when they have a disabled child, asset tests, and ABLE accounts. She's a wealth of knowledge on this topic. As always, stick around until the end of the show to hear my top three takeaways from this episode, or you can head to smartmoneymamas.com forward slash Bryn. B-R-Y-N-N-E, for the complete show notes. Are you ready, mamas? Let's get started. Hey, Bryn, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Chelsea? Good. I am so glad to have you on the show, especially everyone loved your talk at the summit last year. Uh, I had a great time. They were a great audience. It was so helpful for anyone who has special needs kids. And I feel like there's so little direct financial advice for people in that situation. Why is this a specialty for you, something that you look into so closely? Yeah, definitely. So I think throughout the course of my writing, I've always written about things that I have experience with or questions that I've wanted answers and I couldn't find the answer to anywhere else. So I decided to write about it, right? And this was very much one of those topics. When my child was three years old, they were diagnosed with autism And it changed the way that I viewed my personal finances and the questions that I asked and the way I interacted with healthcare systems and state systems. And there's not too much out there about that. So I try to ask the questions, get my own questions answered, and then kind of share what I learned with everyone else. That's fantastic. And I think that for those of us who don't have special needs kids, I don't think we even understand the depth of how different it is and what agencies you're building relationships with. And and there's such privilege in that. But can you delve into a little bit about what was different? What did you have to learn quickly to make sure your kids had the right resources and that you were financially secure? When they're real little, a lot of states will help you out whether or not your kid has a diagnosis. But then as they get a little bit older, a lot of those programs end unless your child can, in fact, get a diagnosis and get access to Medicaid and all of those services. Getting a diagnosis was huge um, and something that I didn't initially want to do because of my own biases and preconceived judgments, honestly. Um, I'm not super proud of that now. Now, if I could go back in time, I would get a diagnosis as soon as possible. So getting that diagnosis was probably one of the biggest challenges. A lot of times, depending on the disability and your state, we had to wait six months to get an appointment just to verify with the state that my child did, in fact, have a disability. That doesn't go just through your child's doctor? In some states, it can. A lot of times, though, like my child is autistic. For that specific need, we needed a psychiatrist. And the diagnosing psychiatrist had to be from a certain 
I don't know, Children's Institute or something working with the state or locality. Um, and so they gave us a list. We called those people and got the first appointment we could. So everything takes a really long time. There are benefits out there, but the number of benefits will change greatly depending on your state. I found out that I'm super fortunate and lucky to live in Pennsylvania. We have some of the best for our kids here. Everything takes a long time. Everything's hard. Like sometimes my kids get kicked off of health insurance sometimes because someone at the welfare office didn't file the paperwork that I gave them correctly. Your life is kind of like a constant paperwork nightmare. That sounds awful. <laughs> and I'm curious, like, is there, was there anyone to walk you through this and to know what paperwork you were even supposed to file? Like for moms that are listening to this that have kids with special needs that maybe haven't pushed for a diagnosis yet. And I think we talked about before we got on the call here that one of the women in our audience asked that her child is going through occupational therapy and the expenses are adding up. And she to date has not pushed for a diagnosis. And I'm not sure why that is. It might be you had some insight on why you wanted to wait, but she wants to know why she should do that. So is there anyone besides you in, in this conversation right here that can explain that to her and what the options are? Well, a huge thing for me was I didn't want my child labeled. And that, again, that may or may not be what your listener is or reader is going through as well. I didn't want something that was necessarily going to follow my child if the therapy was going to quote unquote fix things. Right. And like for autism, again, that was very specific. And it's something that is a part of who my kid is. Um, it's not something that necessarily needs to be fixed, but every disability and situation is different. And when those therapies start to add up, you start to realize that you really need extra help. And even if you have insurance through work, a lot of times it's not going to cover adequately what you need. So I would, depending on your state, um, but in most states, I would really try to push for that diagnosis, if only to get your child the health insurance that they need. If you're concerned about it, talk to your child's educators. Um, if they're elementary or older aged, talk to your child's pediatrician. This isn't to do something to put a label on your kid. This is to make sure that the state is giving your kid everything that they need and are entitled to. And you have a guide. It's currently Autism Awareness Month, which I'd love to hear a little bit about what that entails and what, what the mission is there. But you have the Medicare guide state by state. So can you tell people where they can find that and what's included? Yeah, absolutely. So if you go to Fem Frugality, especially in April, we have a lot of autism content up. And one of those things is the Medicaid state by state guide. And when they're younger, you're going to have them on Medicaid. Typically, that goes to age 21. Some states it's 19. But your child can be covered depending on the state, regardless of your income. And that's really where it gets sticky, because in some states, if you make too much money, your kid's not going to qualify for Medicaid, even if they're disabled. But there are a lot of states that have these things called waivers in place. And what that allows them to do is essentially bill the federal government more so they can get more money to cover your kid's special needs and everything they need to live a safe and healthy life. Can you tell me a little bit about those waivers? Like, what are they asking? Is it about the diagnosis again? What's involved in filing one of those waivers? On your end, as a parent, there's not a whole lot going on. There's one waiver um, that a lot of states use called the Katie Beckett waiver. Um, and that was actually, surprisingly enough, a Ronald Reagan program that was instituted to get children out of homes because prior to, I think it was the early 80s, children who had disabilities would often only be cared for by the state if they were shipped off to a home. They ran the numbers and found out that it's actually way cheaper to take care of kids in communities. 
there is a waiver that states can take advantage of, not all states do, that essentially foots the bill to the federal government. And that's called the Katie Beckett or the TEFRA waiver. And for that, um, in my state anyways, I just apply for Medicaid for my kid and they take care of all the back end stuff. I don't worry about it. There are other states that have home and community-based services waivers. Those are typically capped. That's where you're going to start seeing more wait lists. But if your state does it that way, you may have to fill out a separate application. Again, going to the Department of Public Welfare, specifically the Department of Health and Human Services or your state's equivalent, that's where you're going to find the application and the people who have your state and locality-specific information. Gotcha. And so are the Katie Beckett waivers different from the Intellectual and Developmental Disability Waiver? Katie Beckett covers all sorts of disabilities. Again, that's the one that you're not really going to interface with as a parent. That's just some like behind the scenes information about what's going on. But the intellectual and developmental disability waivers, along with you might see them called like autism waivers or home-based services waivers, depending on your state and what they want that specific waiver to cover, it'll be called something different. But those are the HCBS, the home and community-based service waivers. Um, And again, the HCBS isn't something you're necessarily going to need, but that's what the autism waiver is or the intellectual and developmental disability, again, depending on your state. And what kind of services are those? So for TEFRA, for Katie Beckett, it's pretty inclusive in most cases. You're going to get things like OT covered. You're going to get things like the therapies your kid needs. In my state, I know that it also covers nutritional supplements. If you're having trouble getting your kid potty trained, diapers past a certain age are covered as a medical necessity. Also, behavioral health is supposed to be covered. (laughs) supposed to. Yeah, there are some states doing some funny things. They're interpreting the Medicaid system. They're interpreting their guidance differently than the words on the page would indicate. And unfortunately, these are more rural or red states in a lot of cases. So if you live in one of these states and your state's resisting the federal government, they're actually denying services to your kid. Um, And that's problematic for a lot of people in this country. Okay. One of the questions we got as I was prepping for this interview, was, is there a way to define special needs and who gets aid? We we're talking about it in our group of like the range of even autism diagnosis, right? Like high functioning autism versus people that are, you know, nonverbal or that whole stretch. Like where is the limit of when you can actually get Medicaid help or uh, supplemental security income and things like that? So something that Pennsylvania has done in the recent past is take away all those levels of different diagnoses for exactly that reason. We found that Pennsylvania's children were not getting the services they need. So now everything on the spectrum is diagnosed as autism and all those kids have access to all those services. It is not the same in all states. And so unfortunately, especially if your state is running off of those HCBS waivers, the number of services may be limited. And is there any way to advocate for your kid as they go through the diagnosis process, as you go to apply for aid? What can you do to help them get the resources that they need? So one thing I would highly recommend, it's called the 2014 CMS letter, specifically for parents with kids who have developmental disabilities. And that is a legal letter where CMS has told states you have to cover behavioral health services. That might include therapy. It might include medical equipment that serves as an intervention. 
And so really doing your research on your state's program, um, which the guide helps with a little bit, it gives you a really good place to get started. Okay. But doing further research into those state and local programs and laws, unfortunately, I found that citing the law has been the most effective way to deal with health insurers and local agencies just in getting my child what they need. That makes sense. Uh, unfortunately, it makes sense. And a lot of times people are not doing it to be malicious. Uh, in the case of health insurance companies, I, I tend to feel a little differently. But a lot of times the local agencies and stuff, nobody's doing it to hurt you. They just don't understand what's going on. So taking that time to calmly explain to them the problem or the institutional hurdle that's being placed in front of you and begging them to help you find a way around it. That's usually been the most effective method for me. If you have kids in the school system, though, know that you have a lot of rights. You have a lot of say in their education. And in a lot of times, you have more say than the people in that room want you to know. A lot of states will provide educational advocates to sit next to you and get some of those services your kids need, like OT, PT, keeping your kid in a mainstream school if you feel that's the least restrictive environment for them. And so in that setting, I would really, really encourage parents to err on the side of over-advocating rather than under-advocating while trying to work as a team with those IEP professionals. Yeah. And I think that that point on trying to work as a team, what we've heard before is that those meetings can become very confrontational. Um, <laughs> that doesn't always serve. So do you have any advice for parents that are trying to work with their IEP team or even with their their kids' medical professionals to make sure that you're advocating in a way that is actually getting them what they want and not creating more headwind? A lot of this is just going to be soft skills. Like if you have experience working with horrible people, I've sat in on a few of those meetings and like there's some really great educators out there really advocating for our kids. And then there are some administrators and principals who are very concerned about their budget above everything else. But if you go in there and you know that IEP is a legal document and you are the parent and you have a lot of say in what goes into it and you just come from that place and don't let them get you riled up, but do assert your child's rights and remember that you're doing this for your kid and not for you. I think that helps a lot of us. Um, in situations where we might normally back down to people who are like peacocking their authority. Remember that you're doing it for your kid and that you are exercising those rights for your kids and just do it in a way that doesn't play into anybody else's confrontation. And are there any good support networks for parents going through this, either for the first time or just, you know, trying to raise their kids through this system? Is there a place to connect with other parents that are doing the same thing? Yeah, definitely. And that's going to vary a lot depending on the disability. One thing I would encourage all parents of kids with disabilities to do is seek out organizations that are not necessarily run by other parents, because while that is helpful for networking and social support for you, it's not necessarily helpful for the long-term advocacy of your child. What you want to do is look for organizations at the state and local level that are run by and voiced for by people in that community. So like my kids autistic. So I would want to look for a local organization that advocates for autistic rights run by autistic people. If my kid were deaf, I would want to look to my local deaf club um, and get my kid exposure to the culture and the language that that community has and provides and the strong sense of self-advocacy that they really have. And so I would really look for those organizations that are run by the people who your child will become, not who you are. That makes a lot of sense. And is there a big national organization, at least in the autistic community, that does that, that is run by autistic individuals? 
I am going to get back to you with that with a couple of different organizations. And we can provide that to your readers, maybe in the show notes or something. There's one that I would stay away from, but there are a couple of really, really good ones out there doing good work. But again, a lot of this, because your rights and your child's access to those services are so localized, the national organizations are great. But if you're really looking to do advocacy work that's going to affect your life in a real way in real time, I would look to those local and state organizations. Bryn, do you want to tell us who you would want to avoid? That was a pretty interesting statement about advocacy. Yeah, definitely. Specifically for autism. Autism Speaks has a history of advocating for not necessarily the rights of autistic individuals and children within our society, but for a cure. And so these are a bunch of parents who are still mourning what they perceive to be as a loss, and they're attempting to cure neurodiversity, which is insulting. It's borderline eugenics. And it just it does not help our society or solve any of the real problems that parents are facing. Um, some of their other auxiliary efforts may be supportive to some parents who feel isolated and in need. Um, and I do want to say that I think they're coming from a good place. I just don't know that it's a very informed place or a very helpful place long term. And I think that brings up a powerful point, right, of the the adjustment process that parents must have to go through of any child of special needs, right? Of like accepting them as who they are and making sure that you're not trying to fix them, right? Did you find through your process like good support networks, good people that kind of helped you accept your child for exactly who they were? Which I know is a, seems a, like a silly question, right? Because it should be automatic, but we do have expectations of who our kids are going to be uh, before we meet them. And there's a process to adjusting to it. Sorry if that question sounds super insensitive. <laughs> no, not at all. It's a really difficult thing to talk about because like it is this ableist thing that we all have within us, right? Like we feel that if our child gets diagnosed, that means it's going to limit them in life. And we do not want our children to be limited in any way. And so what has been helpful for me is we used to do outpatient therapy more when they were younger. We made friends just like in the therapy offices and like just the people who are around you in those settings are going through probably very similar things. Um, so I have found that a very nice place to like network and build kind of community that way. But yeah, it really shifting my perspective from okay, I'm not going to let this thing limit my child into, okay, I'm not going to let the society that I live in limit my child. She is just as important, just as able to contribute. Um, and even if she weren't, that doesn't devalue her as a human being, an American citizen. So I'm going to work with whatever system I have to get them everything they need. And I am going to work to change that system so that it's easier for her and everyone else in the same situation. I love that. That's awesome. So we'll pull back to the money thing for a second on resources, because we mentioned in passing supplemental security income. Um, we haven't actually explained what that is and why you might want to apply. And I think I've heard you say before that there's reasons to apply even if you're high income. Absolutely. So especially if you have a kid and you're trying to get them that Medicaid access. And again, Medicaid can serve a secondary insurer, like your primary insurer might be your work insurer. But in Pennsylvania, at least, again, very state to state, we can use Medicaid as supplement to kind of pick up the rest of that bill. With SSI, my kid doesn't qualify for SSI because I make too much money. Um, mm -hmm. I could only make it somewhere between seven and $800 a month if I wanted my kid to qualify for SSI payments. That's not our situation right now. 
But I still had to go through because the Social Security Administration had to decide that my kid did, in fact, have a disability. And that's what allowed them to gain Medicaid access was that confirmation of a diagnosis of a disability. Okay, so that is part of the process of getting even if you have a diagnosis from your doctor, I'm, I'm trying. <laughs> like, I know it's so complicated. Well, again, it's going to depend on your state because I live in a state that does the TAFRA Katie Beckett program. That is how it works. I did have to go through and apply for social security, uh, get denied, but also have it confirmed that my kid is disabled. Okay. So this actually closes the loop on when you were saying you just apply for your kid for Medicare with your state, with Katie Beckett, you just apply and the state handles it in the background when you were explaining that, I was like, but how do they know that your kid has a disability? This is how they know. <laughs> this is exactly how they know. Yeah. And this is also where I believe I had to send in the psychiatrist's notes and everything to confirm that with the Social Security Administration. But that was also another six month wait. I had to schedule my call six months out for that confirmation. If you are questioning, should I do this now? Yes, start it now, because in 18 months, you might actually be able to start getting benefits. It's not quite that bad, and it varies from every state, but like it's a process. So if you're wondering if you should, you should definitely get started. You can always change your mind later. All right, Bryn. So obviously, these systems for covering occupational therapy and things when they're young are amazing, but ultimately we want them to be able to go out and thrive in the world, right? So the first question that comes up a lot in my audience is ABLE accounts. What do they do and how can you use them? ABLE accounts are great. I love them. Um, A lot of states will have asset tests to get on things like Medicaid or anything else that supports you when you have a disability. And so what an ABLE account does is it allows you to stash money in there. It's a 529 account technically, so you can use it to either store cash or build investments for the long term. And so you put your money in there and then it doesn't count towards those asset tests. And you can put up to 15 grand a year in there, up to, I believe it's $100,000. And that doesn't count against you for social security income or for food stamps. And then each state is a little different on how they handle it for their Medicaid system, I believe, unfortunately. But for a lot of benefits that can save you. You can actually build an emergency fund because that's a big thing is like, if you're a family who's interfacing with the medical system so often, you need an emergency fund very, very often and a huge one at that. And so a lot of these asset test programs disallow you from doing that. And by allowing you to store the money in an ABLE account without accounting, you're actually able to build savings to allow you to have some type of financial stability. And can you have an ABLE account in addition to a 529? Because I know the policies are similar. That's a great question. I don't know that I necessarily would, because if you put money into an ABLE account for your child, you can use that money for their educational expenses. That's definitely an option. However, it's more flexible because the qualified withdrawals can be for anything um, in their life. Like it can be for rent if they end up not going to college. It can be for groceries or food or services or anything that they need. Anything that's related to the disability is related to them as a human being. So those qualified expenses are far more expansive. I guess if you had maxed out the ABLE account, maybe look into another 529, but I'm not sure about the tax implications with that either. I might just use an ABLE account instead of a 529. That makes a lot of sense. And then are there other nonprofit grants or scholarships available, places that they should be looking either for college or just getting on their feet and finding a career after high school? 
Definitely. So the number one thing I would do is when your kids in middle school, if your school hasn't brought it up yet, I would start talking to your IEP team about the Office of Vocational and Rehabilitative Services in your state. And what they are supposed to do is come and work with your child to generate ideas on like a career plan or like, what do you want to do after high school? Can we get you job shadowing? Can we get you an internship while you're still in high school to help you kind of smooth that gap? What accommodations are you going to need and how can we help you advocate for yourself? In addition to those resources, while your kid is going through middle and high school, another option that they have available are these grants made available to them by the federal government. And what they can do with that money is they can issue it directly to college students or trade school students or anyone looking to get career training. And you can use that money to pay for school. It's like a grant in Pennsylvania. It's capped, I believe, at the same amount as a Pell grant, but every state is different. A select few of them will pay for even grad school. They just have to have the funding available because the money does run out. And what is the cap for a Pell Grant? Do you happen to know? Right now, I believe it's in the high 5,000s, pushing 6,000. I could, I would have to go back and check for this year, though. Okay. What about special needs trusts, right? So if you have a kid that needs long-term care and you're trying to plan for your own estate planning, how do you make sure that they have the care they need once you're gone? Why is having a special needs trust better than just naming your child as a beneficiary of a life insurance policy, for instance? The needs are extremely, extremely complex, And I'm going to be completely honest with you. I don't have my assets at a level yet where I have gone through this entire process for my own child. But I believe that in addition to fiduciary financial concerns, there's also medical concerns, day-to-day concerns. This is something that causes me a lot of anxiety and something that once my assets are a little bit larger, I'm going to be pursuing. But I know that if your assets are not very large, In some communities, what you can do is go to a nonprofit who's partnered with your locality or state. So again, going to the Department of Public Welfare is going to help a lot in getting this information. And those organizations will provide fiduciary trustees for those special needs trusts. And so if you're comfortable allowing that nonprofit organization to manage your child's future, that might be a much easier way and a much lower barrier of entry way to kind of get all of those complicated concerns addressed before you're passing. So excuse my complete ignorance to this, but with a special needs trust, does that usually include a trustee? So are you usually finding an organization or a lawyer that's going to be the trustee for your child? It's not just a different form of like a standard trust? Because you're saying if the nonprofit organization is going to manage your kid's assets. Right, right. So whoever you would set up as, as the trustee in a special needs trust. And again, this is something that I would really encourage people to talk to a lawyer about. But yeah, you're going to have somebody administering like any assets you leave behind to your child or like any medical decisions for your adult child who is, if they are not capable of making those decisions for themselves. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. I was curious with like, we have a trust for our kids, the standard family trust, but we named a trustee that's like a friend who has financial background. So Obviously, there's medical concerns and there's other more common frequent decisions with, I would imagine, with many special needs trusts. So I don't know if that would mean you would hire, you would ask like a nonprofit or a lawyer or a financial advisor to do that instead of a friend. That was more my question there. Yeah, no. And I mean, real talk, that's part of the reason I haven't done it. Even though I know those services are available to me, this is my kid. I don't know that I trust a rotating staff at a nonprofit agency as valiant and as great as the work they may be doing today is 
after I'm passed away, I don't know if I feel comfortable with that setup in that situation. And that may just be something I need to educate myself more on, but I'm kind of waiting until I reach that asset level where I'm going to merit all of the costs of an attorney and setting everything up. And at that point, I will be picking somebody who's much closer <laughs> to me. <laughs> gotcha. And then life insurance considerations, right? So we have like our standard recommendations for people about how much life insurance they need. How does that change when you have a kid that needs long-term care? Like what life insurance considerations would you think that parents should make? If you have a higher income, I think you're going to have a lot more freedom in making this decision. For a lot of parents who are at the median income level, who are living paycheck to paycheck already, I don't know. The financial burden is not calculable. It's going to depend so much on what your child's needs end up being when they grow up, what kind of medical health care systems we have set in place for our citizens when they're adults. And these are things that are not given. I would say, look at your medical expenses now, look at any potential changes in Medicaid law at the state level now. And if you can base your calculations and your annual spending on that, and that's the best you can do, that might be okay. Because there's just so many unknowns out there that I don't know that if you plan for every worst case scenario, you will literally never have enough money. Oh, yeah. And it was interesting, too. In one of your articles, you cited this Harvard study that Harvard estimated it costs $1.4 million to financially support a person with autism and $2.3 million if they have an intellectual disability. And that seemed remarkably low over a lifetime for me for what healthcare expenses are. And I assume if you have health insurance, maybe that might be the right number. These numbers are very, very high, especially if you're at a median income level. I even know people who are in the same situation as I am, and they have extremely well-paying jobs and like, and they're still out there applying for grants and applying for Medicaid because really it's a ridiculous situation we're in for, I think for disabled kids across healthcare systems, honestly, but especially here in America where everything's so decentralized, it's really, really just a hard place to be in regardless of your income level. The costs are unsurmountable without the aid. This raises a really interesting question of we have a large audience of listeners and moms that are young parents. So their kids are, you know, under five and they might just be getting these diagnoses. Right. And so when they start to think about and this is a question we've gotten a few times of my child just got diagnosed with autism. Therefore, like, here's the therapy that we're starting. How do we start to budget and plan for what our upcoming expenses are? Like, what are young parents? What should they be saving for? What should they be expecting to come up as their kid gets older? Obviously, this is going to depend on diagnoses. So <laughs> it depends so much on diagnoses and also like just your your child's needs. Like even within the spectrum, there's like so much that I can think like my daughter's needed that like other people's kids that I know haven't and vice versa. So definitely plan for medical expenses. I don't think that it would be a bad decision to especially after what we're all going through right now and what we've all seen right now with job security and access to healthcare to build an emergency fund that's double what you normally would. Medical billing is a mess and a whole other conversation for another time. But essentially, even if you have the right to that coverage, if you have to spend years fighting an insurance company to get your kids something you need, you might have to fight them later for reimbursement. So even if your child's legally entitled to it through the health insurer, if you have to fight them for two years, you might find yourself fighting them more for reimbursement rather than upfront payment, depending on what it is. I would not recommend paying bills that you don't legally owe. 
because it's hard to get your money back. But if it's something that your child needs today to live a safe and healthy life, having that padding and having that money is just a godsend. And what is that? Obviously, this is so situational, but not paying medical bills that you don't owe, right, that you can fight. What does that do to your credit? Are you trying to just constantly get things removed from your credit report or their general personal finance stuff you should be keeping an eye on as you fight these battles? I would say that a little education up front goes a long way. Doctors are not allowed to bill you for things that Medicaid covers. In Pennsylvania, our Medicaid is administered by a bunch of different health insurance companies. I had a couple of these different health insurance companies deny like quite a few of my claims before, but I refused to pay them because it was illegal billing. The care provider should not have been billing me. So knowing that upfront is helpful, knowing that if you interact with a system that maybe is not a therapist, maybe it's the ER, you have rights to financial assistance under Obamacare, even independent of Medicaid. That's just under the ACA. If the hospital system is a nonprofit, they have to offer you financial assistance. Um, So knowing this and calling them on it early before they send you to a collection agency, once you've called them on it, they have to acknowledge it. But just keep on top of those bills. If you're getting billed for stuff that you shouldn't be or you even have a minor question about it, call them and try to deal with it. If you feel like they're really trying to scam you, there's also advocates out there who work in healthcare billing who may be able to help you, um, in some cases, even pro bono, depending on your income. And this is neither here nor there, but as I've just listened to this whole conversation, right? And this is, I mentioned at the top, right? Like there's so much privilege in not even knowing what this system looks like, but the emotional and mental energy that goes into having to chase the healthcare providers down and apply for all these systems. I mean, how can parents that don't have special needs kids be better partners and advocates for families that do. I mean, I think almost all of us have friends that have a kid with special needs if we don't have one ourselves. What can we do to help? Babysit. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, that's one of the biggest things is having somebody that you can trust to watch your kid. Like, and you know that if there is a meltdown or something, like it's not going to be the end of the world. Like, you know, this person is capable It sounds silly, but that's one of the biggest mental health things that's helped me is just having like a small team of people I know I can tap if like I need a break. Other than that, pay attention to those local organizations in your state. Um, I encouraged the parents who are facing this to go out and seek them. I would encourage all the parents who don't to go out and seek them too. look for these groups that are run by local people who actually have that disability. Look at the laws they're trying to change. Listen to their voices when they're telling you how it impacts them and then go out and vote. Vote for people who support the measures that are supporting the most marginalized in our society. Absolutely. All right. So my last question for you about this is after they turn 18, healthcare and employment access, right? How can we prepare our kids to advocate for themselves in in seeking a career and seeking a job? What advice do you have as they make that transition? This is really hard because a lot of it, again, depending on the disability, is going to be interpersonal skills. Because, I mean, like I can go into an interview and have someone not say anything ableist to me at all and still totally not hire me because they're afraid of the cost of the accommodation, not being aware that this would be subsidized by the federal government. So really having your kid aware of the Americans with Disabilities Act and being on the lookout for any violations of that. A lot of them are going to be soft violations that employers just aren't familiar with, because despite the fact this law is almost as old as me, a lot of employers are just 
completely aloof to the responsibilities they have under it. And the ADA essentially says you have to accommodate disabled people in our society. That's the end. Reasonable accommodations must be provided. So encouraging them and working with them, especially in high school, to advocate for whatever their needs are and teaching them those soft skills that they may need to act interpersonally and maybe address any concerns that the employer isn't expressing but might still hold. Because unfortunately, a lot of people go without jobs and aren't going to win a case in court for ableism coming up and keeping them from employment. Because again, a lot of employers might feel that way and might end up making their decision that way, but they're not necessarily going to reveal that in a way that's going to legally expose themselves. I was at a event a couple of months ago that was hosted by these two women in Connecticut that run a coffee shop and restaurant that is 50-50 Down syndrome employees and neurotypical employees and another woman who runs the Connecticut organization about employment for people with special needs. And the woman who runs the Connecticut organization was saying that they run up to so many companies that think that hiring people with special needs means they won't be able to do the work. They were like, well, what if they're not performing? What do I say to them? And she's like, you talk to them the same you would talk to anyone else in your company that's not performing. Like, why is it 2020 and I'm still having this conversation? It was powerful because she was just talking about like exactly what you were saying, going into those communities, finding what their organizations are advocating for, spending more time and just as stupid as it seems, like viewing them as people and not some issue that you have to accommodate. Right. Um, And it shouldn't be a problem, but apparently it still is. (laughs) And definitely like a huge part of this is helperism. Right. So it's this idea that if I go out and help disabled people, that makes me valiant. And like, it's a very common thing in our society, like, especially I feel like maybe not so much for the younger generations who have kind of grown up with a little more education around being aware of stuff like this. But like, I know when I was raised, like that was a thing that people wanted to do. They wanted to go out and help the disabled. And really, I think it's about changing our framing so that we are not viewing ourselves as better than or them in need of help, rather just listen to people as human beings. When we don't listen, that's when there are problems because we're not addressing the concerns of people who actually deal with these systems on a day-to-day basis. Um, And because we think we know so much better than them, we continue to hurt them. And that's really one of the biggest dangers when we engage in disabledism, even unaware. So we've talked through a ton of resources today about what are available for parents and kids of special needs, Medicaid access, your guide on state by state will be linked in the show notes. Any last piece of advice for parents of special needs kids that are going through all these processes? Um, right now, honestly, the biggest thing I would want to let people know is that you're not alone in your experiences, especially right now with what our country is going through. Even if things clear up in a couple of weeks, I know that for our household, these are going to be some days that are remembered for a while. (laughs) Um, There are, in some states, there are people still going out and providing services as they've been deemed essential services. There's also states trying to get out of IEP obligations, which is also understandable because we're kind of up against this wall of like, Do we get our kids what they need, which is interpersonal interaction, or do we take care of our community's long-term health? And so if you're up against those decisions and you've lost your physical network who helps you make it through the week every week, you're not alone and this will end. And hopefully there will be better solutions for us in the future. Absolutely. All right, Bryn, before we let you go, we have to have you try on our Smart Money Mamas sorting hat. 
So the sorting hat is our version of the hot seat where the magical hat asks a question to reveal something about you. It contains a number of questions about money, motherhood, and life. Are you ready? I'm ready. What is your family's favorite children's book? Oh, we've been crushing on a loon alone lately. Oh, I don't know that one. It's like about this little loon up in Maine. It's really cute. <laughs> that sounds super cute. Awesome. I'll have to look that up. And Bryn, where can people find you? Follow up um, on your guide and wherever you are on social media. Absolutely. So you can go to femfrugality.com. In April for Autism Acceptance Month, we are doing a whole series. Um, at least once a week, we'll have a new piece of content up, including the updated Medicaid state-by-state guide. Um, there's a lot of updates for 2020. So even if you've downloaded it before, I'd encourage you to check it out again. And you can find me on social media at femfrugality on all the places, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, Instagram. Awesome. Thank you so much, Bryn, for joining us and educating us. And I hope we talk to you again soon. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Mamas, there's so much to think about when raising a special needs child. And it is no surprise that it impacts parents' career choices, finances, and so much more. Hopefully, if you have special needs kids, Bryn provided some guidance on the support available to you and how to get it. If you don't have special needs kids, I hope you got some insight into what other parents may be facing and learn some ways to support or send good resources to friends and family that are in that position. As always, I've rounded up my top three takeaways from today's episode to summarize the biggest things we learned from Bren. Are you ready? First, there are financial resources available to parents of kids with special needs through Medicaid, Supplemental Security Income, and state and local programs. Even if you don't believe you'll qualify for these programs, Advocate for your child to get a proper diagnosis and apply as soon as possible. Diagnoses can get harder to come by as kids get older. Some programs require kids to have been diagnosed by a certain age, and the waiting time to see the right doctors could be months. If you don't qualify for SSI, this is still the method through which the government will recognize your child as special needs, making it possible to apply for Medicaid and other programs. Medicaid can even act as a secondary insurance to cover therapies and treatments your primary insurance provider doesn't cover. These medical costs add up, and getting the help you're eligible for can free up funds to prepare for your and your child's future. Second, if your child qualifies for an ABLE account, take advantage. This is a more flexible way to save for their futures. ABLE accounts work like 529 plans, meaning that the contributions go in post-tax, but the investments in the account grow tax-free and are not taxable upon withdrawal. But while you can only use a 529 plan for higher education expenses, ABLE accounts can be used for living expenses, medical costs, and anything your child might need. In addition, the first $100,000 in an ABLE account is excluded from the SSI income test and is also excluded from a number of other benefit asset tests in most states, like food stamps. The sooner you can start saving in one of these accounts, the longer the power of compound growth has to do its work, creating more dollars for your child's future care. I'll include a link in the show notes to a good resource from the National Resource Center about ABLE accounts. And finally, third, look for support. Find local groups and advocacy organizations where you can find community and your child can interact with people of all ages living with their disability. Ideally, advocacy groups should be run by those living with the disability, not by their caretakers. These are places where you can ask questions about the financial and other resources available to you and get support. You'll also discover more about what programs and initiatives those communities are pushing for and how you can help create a better and more inclusive world for your child. 
Bryn recommends organizations like Autistic Advocacy and National Association of the Deaf. Community is important. You're not alone in feeling overwhelmed or like you're learning a new language around treatment, IEPs, financial resources, and more. There are people to lean on, and you can do this. I want to thank Bryn again for joining me on the show for Autism Acceptance Month and for her fantastic state-by-state Medicaid guide, now updated for 2020. I so appreciate her using her financial knowledge to help other special needs parents navigate the web of financial programs and their rights. If you'd like to see the full show notes for today's episode with links to Bryn's guide, visit us at smartmoneymamas.com forward slash Bryn. That's B-R-Y-N-N-E. Keep talking money, mamas. I'll see you next time. 